Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of MetCast, the podcast of Manchester Metropolitan University. My name is Chris Morris, and in this episode, I speak to Dr. Stephanie Steeles, lecturer in global public health about the COVID-19 vaccinations taking place across the world. We discussed the vaccination programme currently underway in the UK, any hurdles it might face, and what the realistic timeline of everyone in the country being vaccinated might be. We also chatted about how the vaccine can be rolled out in different countries across the world, and what benefits we can take into the future from the speed with which the various vaccines have been developed. I spoke with Dr Steeles, who is part of the University's Faculty of Health, Psychology and Social Care, via video call on Friday, January 15th, which the figures in our chat reflect. These figures, of course, have increased a lot since then, as the UK vaccine rollout continues swiftly. So welcome, we're here today to speak to Dr Stephanie Seals, who's a lecturer in global public health at Manchester Metropolitan University. And we're here to talk about COVID vaccinations, and specifically the COVID vaccination programme in the United Kingdom, which has been ongoing since early December. The UK was one of the first countries in the world to start to roll out the vaccine once approval was given to the Pfizer-BioTech vaccine, and later approval was given to the Oxford and AstraZeneca vaccine, and more recently there's been approval to Moderna. And looking at some of the current data, the UK is has delivered almost 3 million as we speak, which is Friday, January the 15th, almost 3 million first doses which is almost 4.5% of the population. And it places the UK in one of the top tier countries in terms of number of vaccinations delivered per 100,000 population. As many of us will have seen, the government has a plan to vaccinate the the most at-risk and vulnerable groups by age category and by medical condition. And that will work through those groups over the coming months with, with a hope that the country will be vaccinated later in the year. So we're here with Dr. Stephanie Steeles. And first of all, Stephanie, I want to ask you how it's gone so far, the UK's vaccination programme. Overall, um, given the current situation with COVID and um, at the moment we're, we're in a national lockdown and we're also in the middle of winter, I would say that we're doing pretty well in terms of getting the people that need to be vaccinated, vaccinated. But there's always room for improvement, isn't there? What I was particularly, you've been pleased about, first of all, I guess, over the past month or so, has it been the rate of delivery, the fact that we are prioritising the groups? What What's going well so far, do you think? The speed of actually getting the vaccines from the manufacturers into the UK and then with, when they're in the UK, they are very quickly um, being checked and approved and then being sent on. And I know for... The rest of us, it can feel like everything is taking quite a long time. But I think it's important to realise that, you know, this is a, a pandemic. We are, it's, we haven't had something like this since 1918 when we, there was a Spanish flu. So I think people need to realise that we're working very, very quick based on the current circumstances that we find ourselves in. And I would say to everybody out there that don't panic, we will all get vaccinated. And part of the UK's plan is got the various kind of infrastructure and centres in place, whether that be the kind of larger scale vaccine centres that we've heard about, one of which is 
the Etihad Tennis Centre in Manchester through to more. I noticed yesterday that some chemists and pharmacists are being allowed to deliver or groups of GPs will be delivering on a more local level. What's your view on the UK's plan and as it is, whether it be the prioritisation, the timelines and rollout of it? What's your view on that? In terms of the actual plan, so this is really focusing on the timings of the rollout and the types of people that they're hoping to get vaccinated and the timeframes allocated to that. They are very ambitious and my feeling is that I'm not sure if in the creation of the plan they actually really thought out about contingency planning. For example, yesterday all the clinic vaccination clinics were cancelled here in Leeds because we've had really bad snow, so currently snowed in. So, of course, that's knocked out one day's worth of vaccination for a a large number of people, very vulnerable people as well in the Leeds and West Yorkshire area. In terms of the timetabling, whether it is realistic... My own personal opinion is not very realistic. I can understand why they might have come to that particular timetable in terms of, you know, boosting people's morale. We're in the middle of winter. We're in another national lockdown. It's very hard going, working from home, especially for those of us with caring responsibilities. And then plus the days are very short Uh, So all these things can have a knock-on effect on our mental health and well-being. So I can see that this glimmer of hope of having this plan, which on paper we'd all be vaccinated by the end of this year. But I think really what they they should have done has been a bit more realistic, really, in terms of rather than saying we're going to have X number of this particular like vulnerable group by the end of... January or setting targets, like Boris Johnson has been setting particular targets for numbers of people being vaccinated on a month-by-month basis. They just need to be a bit more realistic and I think that will actually help people's mental health if they have slightly more realistic timescales because as we saw in the last year with the other lockdowns there was this, you know, everyone would get their hopes up and then they would be dashed again and then, you know, and people started to see how statistics could be manipulated so I think again in terms of building public trust in the messaging that the government creating around vaccine rollout and getting people vaccinated be honest we're all you know treated like grown-ups there might be some slight hesitancy in you know in sort of delivering slightly bad news or maybe uh, they don't want to set more realistic targets but actually it's probably better for everybody if if the targets are slightly more realistic perhaps i'm asking a crystal ball question here (laughs) when do you when would you envisage you know a a large proportion or, or the whole of the uk might have had a first jab so we've worked through the the most vulnerable groups and then we get down on the lower age categories without who aren't classed as being uh, clinically vulnerable when do you think that might happen probably by december this year i would imagine most people would have had one vaccine one shot of the vaccine and i think it's important to remember that At the moment, we can get higher numbers of people vaccinated because it's just the first shot that we are currently administering. But then you will start to get pressure, more pressure on the system 
um, as people come in for their second shot. And that is where I think there needs to be more thought done in the planning of the rollout and the expectations of when people can expect to receive either the first bit, first shot of the vaccine or the second shot. So I think realistically, probably by next summer, I would have hoped that we all have had the double shot of the vaccine. Very much so, because at the moment it's almost 3 million people who have had the first dose, whereas 440,000 have had the second dose. And as we know, it's the government policy to prioritise the first dose, but there'll be almost an extra, a doubling of the population, if you will, won't there, as we have to come round to the second dose. That's right. And we also have to remember that the number of staff administering the doses doesn't change. So then we've got to then think about in terms of priority, who, which is more important, making sure that those who really need the double dosage of the vaccine get the double dosage sooner or a decision around, well, actually, we just need to get as many people on the first dose. Um, and that's a really difficult decision. Of course, of course. And this is one of the biggest vaccination programmes the, the country's ever undertaken. There are obviously other f- famous uh, examples of, of public health interventions. You know, many people have had injections as a child or a teenager. What are, the, what are some of the, the elements that people have to consider at a national level or a local level as part of a large-scale vaccination programme? Well, the first thing is capacity. So probably seen in the press over the past few weeks there's been the call for volunteers to help in administering the vaccine which is really great the role that volunteers can play especially non-clinical people so people like myself I wouldn't be able to vaccinate someone because I'm not clinically trained to administer injections so you know utilizing the volunteers to do perhaps some of the administrative and operational organization so when people come in for vaccines then making sure that there are people on the ground to like check that it's the right person coming in um, and that they're there to receive the correct vaccine because obviously the, we have multiple vaccines in operation at the moment. And I think the other thing is to look at, I mean, it's great we've got pharmacies coming on board now with vaccines, but also perhaps when the lockdown lifts, start thinking about utilising schools or where people go to vote. I mean, that's something that sprung to my mind when I was looking at where people could go for a vaccine. Not everyone lives within walking distance of a GP practice or one of these national centres. Similarly, not every area has a local pharmacy, pharmacy that they can access, but there are lots of schools that people will probably have be able to access in a local area getting school nurses to help administer with the vaccinations would be another key thing to use them part of the vaccination strategy as well so it's it's really drawing on all the kind of society's resources to speed it up and deliver and thinking about as obviously we we know the vaccines are have been through robust testing and they have been approved by some of you know the world's leading medical regulators whether here in the UK or the EU or the USA so the science is there and the injections and vaccines are safe but is there anything we will learn as we go that science will learn as we go I think 
So the vaccines have been, well, the way we develop vaccines, the COVID vaccines have been developed slightly differently. So as a researcher, as a scientist, we set a question to answer through our research. So normally when you're developing a vaccine, like you are setting a set of questions and these are usually, will it save lives? and will it keep people out of hospital? Those are two questions that you might want to answer as a virologist um, developing a vaccine. With the COVID vaccines, because there is such a, a rush to develop a vaccine, so we can go back to a bit more of a life that feels a bit more normal, the, the vaccines that have been developed and approved, and they're safe for use, so just to stress, they are safe for use, so do make sure you, you know, when you are sent your letter to, of uh, offer of your vaccination that you do take it up. But one of the things that the COVID vaccines have been developed is they're really focused on making sure that you don't develop severe symptoms. So the vaccines are more focused on making sure you don't end up in hospital. So what I want people to understand is that just because you have the vaccine doesn't mean that you won't get COVID. So even if we do have the vaccine and people, more and more people become vaccinated, we we still need to have that public health hygiene element that has sort of been brought back in through the pandemic. So people should still wash their hands, especially if you've been outside or shopping. We may have to wear a mask maybe in winter time. Other high, basic hygiene we should be doing, which is similar to, you know, if you've got a cold or a flu, you know, sneeze into a tissue, bin it, wash your hands. So it's not just a case of get the COVID vaccine. It's like, yeah, I'll never get COVID. The vaccines have been developed to stop you from going into hospitals. So to stop you going on oxygen, becoming a, going on an ICU unit. And so one of the things will be interesting to see as more and more people get vaccinated is actually looking at the severity of symptoms that people get as and when they or they do do or don't get COVID um, having had the vaccine. How many of those people, worst case scenario, end up dying if we could just touch on, obviously, Steph, your, your expertise is in, is in global public health. And one of the things we know specifically about the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccination vaccine was developed purposely at a low cost to help developing countries. What, what are some of the issues or hurdles the world needs to tackle to make sure it's not just rich developed countries that are fully vaccinated, but that countries with different infrastructure, different transport connections, different ability to store at low temperatures, which some of the vaccines need. Of course, the AstraZeneca vaccine, one of the benefits is it, it can be done at fridge temperatures. How do we as a, as, as a global society get this vaccine out across the world? So I think what we'll probably have to do is treat the global vaccine rollout, especially for those living in develop in the developing world or low and middle income countries depending on what terminolo terminology you want to use but utilize so we'll probably have to utilize big international organizations um, who are used to working in very low resource settings so someone like medical uh, San frontiers they would be an organ organization that i would be working with to make sure that the vaccines can get rolled out very quickly i think as well it's important to 
to note that some developing countries have really good health systems set up. They might not have the like the digital and technology side that we have here in the UK and in the US and in Europe, but they have really good sort of on the ground systems through community networks and really grassroots organisations. So I think utilising those as well. And I think we'll have to be really creative and imaginative around how the vaccines are operationalised in terms of travel. I always like to tell a story of when my husband was working in, in Africa many, many years ago. So what my husband noticed was that you could get a particular brand of soft drink in many areas um, where you might not be able to get anything else. And so what he did was he worked with the local distribution networks to, as they were delivering the soft drinks to various local communities, they were also delivering medical supplies. So I think we just have to be more creative in how we work with different organisations and to think outside the box as well. So not just thinking that it has to be a health organisation that we have to work with. We need the healthcare organisations, especially those who are clinically able to administer the vaccine itself, but they're just a small number. They're like the end point. We still need other organisations involved or other community groups involved as well who can do some of the more operational type work. Kind of utilising existing networks and, and alongside building the new networks to, to roll it out. Yeah, and also... You know, a lot of these countries have really good vaccination programs for exi existing vaccines. So you can utilise those as well. So if people are bringing maybe their child in to get a measles vaccine, for example, then whilst you're there, your child might be having measles. You as a parent can then go have your COVID vaccine. So it's it, whilst you've got people there to, to do one thing, then, you know, make, making sure that people are offered the, the COVID vaccine as well. One of the big barriers is going to be the culture. So we can already see that here. Um, there's a lot of, we can see in particular populations, there's a vaccine hesitancy. Part of that is a lot of mistrust there's a lot of misinformation and we'll have to draw heavily on the international it will certainly the global public health arena in terms of how they communicate with different types of community groups and local populations to help you know here we're quite formal so it's like a leaflet or a radio campaign or you know you see it in the press in the print printed newspaper newspapers People in other parts of the world, not everyone can read. And actually the same here in the UK, not everybody can read or be, or they're not a fluent reader. So we have to think about, you know, that cultural barrier of vaccine acceptance and that misinformation. So we might need to look at, for example, the health promotion campaigns that have been run around AIDS, HIV through storytelling and theatre and plays to help get that message across to other population Groups. We might also want to look at how grassroots organisations have worked to build that community trust as well. And that's something we can apply here in the UK by getting local leaders involved. So uh, whether that's through a religious organisation or maybe a education school, for example. And then some of the other barriers will be just resource and logistical. I think that's something that it applies 
everywhere though, not just in a low or middle income country. And from my own experience, I think we can learn a lot from how other countries, especially those in with lower resources, are actually able to facilitate vaccination programmes or immunisation programmes and bring that learning back to the UK. Are there any kind of benefits to be had over the next year or two in terms of learnings for the, the global scientific community over vaccinations, over the speed with which it was developed? You know, can we, have we learned that we can do studies in a more focused way? Have we learned that we can distribute vaccines globally in, in a more effective manner? Are there positives that we can take from the world's response to COVID and vaccine development? Yes, absolutely. I mean, what it's done is shown that when people pull together, everything is possible. When organisations work together, you know, we look at here in the UK and the the quickness in how you know, we've been able to get the approvals, you know, the safety approvals for the vaccine. And that's because the protocols were slightly changed so that the regulators could access the data throughout the trial period where traditionally they always wait till the very end and then that takes a lot of time then to to then do the approvals for a, a vaccine. The other thing is the looking at how the vaccines are manufactured and you know just the logistics of getting them into the UK uh, especially we're now post-Brexit and seeing, starting to see some funding now in the UK to, to make sure that we can develop our own vaccines here in the UK rather than having to rely on sites, um, particularly in Europe. So a lot of the vaccines, like part of the trials, do some of that initial testing on a site out in Europe because we just didn't have the facilities here in the UK, whereas part of the pandemic response has been the building now of those facilities. So I think there's a lot of learning. I think my main concern is that once it subsides and people can be very quick to forget what, you know, what's just happened, you know, reflecting over last summer when, you know, there was a help out to, help out to eat out scheme. I probably got that the wrong way around, but I noticed that people very quickly forgot that we are in a pandemic which is one of the reasons why the, the R number shot up in September. It's it's about making sure that the structures that have been put in place to facilitate the rapid response to COVID-19 either remain in place or are built upon so that it just becomes part of either everyday research, everyday policy making and filtering that down as well. I mean... I can imagine one of the things, a legacy, will be that many of us will continue to have medical appointments over the phone rather than going in person or via video, for example. So it's going to be interesting what the, the COVID pandemic legacy will be. Very much so, and I know I've spoken to your colleagues in our Faculty of Health, Psychology and Social Care in the nursing department uh, early in the summer. One of the things they flagged up that could stay would be as you say telehealth their health via online or telephone services in appropriate circumstances it'll be interesting to see those developments in society 
And the other thing as well is public health has always been one of those things, certainly over the past few decades, it's always been there in the background. And what it's done, it's, it's like the pandemic has really pushed, especially, I mean, I can feel it more because I work in this in global public health. But all of a sudden, like, the, there's a torchlight being sort of like shone on you. And it um, shows as well just how, and especially in the UK, we've been quite underfunded for quite a long time. And for me, sort of, I wonder what our response might have been if the the funding to public health and especially health promotion in the UK had been kept up rather than stripped back into other areas of health and social care. Perhaps that'll be high on governments and stakeholders and, and the, the public's agenda post-pandemic. And finally, Steph, are there any final thoughts or insights in terms of the vaccination and the vaccination rollout that you found particularly interesting? I thought it was really interesting and really great. It's a really good step forward that all the vaccine protocols are available because even though transparency itself is not new in how we create vaccines and how as well we collect data from from people um, within the population i think what it's done is that it allows us to evaluate what is happening in real time which i think is a really important development and it's a really great win as well for public trust that's really reassuring and great to know. There's a lot of positivity across across the country, in Europe and, and the world about the vaccines are rolling out and uh, obviously long may that continue and progress. So Dr. Stephanie Steeles, based in a snowy Leeds currently, <laughs> thank you very much for this chat and the insight into the vaccination. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Metcast the podcast of Manchester Metropolitan University. Your feedback is always welcome, as are much-needed review ratings on iTunes. So if you have a moment, please head there to let us know what you think. You can also subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. That's all for now. Until next time, goodbye.